welcome to The Burn-Up, where I discuss all things Agile with colleagues, clients, and industry leaders. We will be giving you an honest take on tools and techniques, we'll share our experiences, debunk myths, and hopefully provide valuable inspiration. I'm Marcel Bridge, digital consultant, product owner, and business analyst. I've worked in digital before this even had a name, and since have been quite a bit around the blog. I've seen the good and the bad, and this is my way of giving back to the industry. So sit back, relax, and settle in for this week's episode. Hello and welcome to The Burn Up. Today I'll be speaking with Nathan Ardice, founder and director of Almost Anyhow. So yeah, Nathan, this is really cool to have you around finally. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. We, when did we meet? We met? We met at a cafe maybe five, six months ago. Is that right? I think it was in... in kind of lockdown-ish still. Yeah, it was kind of towards the end, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, I don't, yeah, we, you were just working and I think we just struck up a conversation. I think you were reading something like Yeah, Franco Soseski, he was the, um, he ran the Zen Hospice Center in San Francisco for 30 plus years and he just, he's written and talked about this idea of his invitations or his kind of provocations for how you might live with the wisdom of death and he kind of shares yeah. his own experience working at the hospice center working with people who are dying from aids from cancer old age and the kind of incredible insight that he's been privy to about how one can engage with life a bit more kind mm. of with a bit more gratitude and a bit more optimism and a bit more kind of excitement and, and willingness to live in the presence and live with kind of affection and love. It's really brilliant. I listened to a podcast um, they're called This Is Happening, where they have an interview with him. And it's really interesting because it's, it's kind of, it, it starts quite dark because obviously it's about death and dying. <laughs> yeah, brutal, it's brutal too. I mean, like yeah. the San Francisco in the 80s and the 90s. Was, oh, yes. Yeah, it's brutal. Brutal time. And he tells one story which, which, which makes me kind of still cringe where um he supports this woman dying and um and then uh, her i think she was catholic her priest shows up and has a chat with her and apparently she totally freaked after that priest was gone and he kind of inquired what had happened and she told him that the priest had told her that when she dies it's really cool because you go to heaven and you meet everyone you know your family and everyone who's died before you so she would be meeting her husband again who had died a number of years before and apparently that husband had been abusing her all his life and <laughs> what the fuck i mean this is just such a yeah and, and just these stories around how different people look at death and dying and um yeah so in the end, I think the interview with him was, was very uplifting to a degree as well. Um, but it is, it's just a topic we are not sufficiently talking about. I think. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And that's an amazing story because it, it highlights the presence of trauma and yes. highlights the presence of, of pain and of grief. Yeah. And it's something I think we're not often willing to explicitly talk about and and I guess like for me, it's interesting because, well, almost anyhow, my company, yeah. and it is very much about building quality relationships in the workplace or in groups or in settings. And oftentimes the workplace is the one 
one of the places where we are unwilling to be human, you know, <laughs> yes. and we're unwilling to allow for our trauma or allow for our grief to mm. simply be present. Yeah. And um, which has a massive effect. It's interesting because, you know, we, we quite frequently say it's business, it's not personal or where I come from in Germany, at least my generation, we were raised in the sense that you needed to be very uh, professional at work at all times and don't bring any private things into, yeah. into work. And I think that's such an anti-pattern because it, it seems to suggest that you have a different persona at work and yeah. while maybe you, you, you don't bring everything private into work, I think... I think you said it earlier that humanity is super important as, as part of being a, a functioning colleague, really. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's a balance to strike. And Howard Zinn, uh, American historian, wrote, you can't be neutral on a moving train. You are all, you're always coming with some point of view or bias or opinion or perspective. Or, mm. um, and you, you can't turn that off at work. Yes. So... The point is not to labor your trauma or labor your grief, mm -hmm. but it's a recognition that you do, that people do have stuff that they're carrying or things that they're bringing or yes. it's almost always never about the thing that you're talking about in a, in a team or a group or an organization. I mean, you were talking about this guy on one of your teams who skill set is just not up to par for the yeah. project and yeah. he's not delivering what is needed and the point is is that it's almost always never about the work or about the skill or about the there's you know millions of other micro factors mm -hmm. that are happening in that dynamic or in that relationship or in the whatever's happening with the consultancy that you're working with or the way that they work the dynamics in their organization mm -hmm. how they bring people on how how they attract people It's all these like invisible things. And I guess in my work, I'm ultimately supporting the ability, the capacity and the kind of bravery to say, we can talk about those things. I'm sensing this thing in our dynamic. Let's just talk about it. Because right. if we don't talk about it, it's going to continue to come up and it's going to continue to affect the way that we work. If you're numbed at work, then you, you can't engage in those dynamics because you're told that those don't matter and they doesn't mean anything and it doesn't affect how the work happens or the relationships with clients or the product or the quality of delivery or whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know, um, which is just bullshit. I read Frank Ostaseski as an, for an example, as an example, because there's insight for myself and there's, and everything's connected. So yeah. of course that's going to be relevant for working, being in relationship with client or being in relationship with colleague or whatever yeah yeah it was interesting i am you know i mentioned to you as well that i struggle with sometimes giving feedback because i find it's it could be embarrassing to the person who has to receive that feedback it's, yeah. it's negative feedback and then i find that really really hard to kind of be you know open and and, and transparent sometimes because of that um yeah. because you don't want to offend and make that person it's, it's a lot about shame in there as well i think you know where you mm -hmm. don't want to Someone feel shame, maybe. And it was interesting, my, my counselor, she said to me, well, the interesting thing is that you have already a level of anxiety because obviously that person who you should be giving feedback to isn't doing the job very well. Yeah. So you already have anxiety. So 
now you're shying away from solving the problem mm. because it could create anxiety for you, but there is already anxiety. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, inter so that's interesting. What did you, by the end of that discussion, what do you feel like was the next step for you or what was the kind of point of learning? Well, so this is interesting, right? So, so pragmatically, I'm like, well, actually, I should just have that chat with that guy because I'm already angry and anxious. It can't get any worse. And if I talk to that guy, then it will possibly solve the problem, right? <laughs> so I should be. But that's one thing to understand what you should be doing and then really feel like emotionally ready for that. Yeah, that's interesting. It, re it reminds me also, I mean, there's the emotional kind of, you said this, are you emotionally ready or yeah. are you ready to have that? Yeah, which that makes sense, you know, especially if you're already feeling anxious or worried because the project's not going well or whatever. Yeah. But it's, it reminds me of the conversation that we, and that like, it really, you described this idea of, of code debt. Okay. And that in software engineering, if, when you're writing code, the more code you write on top of bad code, yeah. creates a kind of debt and you have to then pay that, you have to pay that debt off eventually, but with interest. Yes. And the interest compounds because Correct. You, you write more. You write more debt, more bad code on top of bad code. Yes. And therefore, that time spent is exponential yes. to fix it. So are you suggesting it's the same for interactions, basically, where you would accrue debt in a relationship as well, if you don't say the things that should be said? Yeah, I think that's like, because you just kind of said this thing, which is, oh, actually, if I had just kind of engaged with it, as soon as I felt yes. it, as soon as I felt it, <laughs> or as soon as I sensed it, right? And yes. this is the thing about kind of being cut off from ourselves. If we're not able to simply sense or express a, a thing that might be coming up, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, you said this thing and I, and I felt this way and I want to just explore that, what's coming up, why has that happened? Yes. And, and I, yeah, and it's so much easier to do it in the moment when you initially feel it or sense it than it is two weeks later when you've been stewing on it and the work has been getting worse and your relationship's been getting worse because you're feeling resentment and you're feeling anger and you don't want to engage with it and you create these narratives about why this person is a jerk and yes. why they're doing this shitty job and they're trying to derail your company or whatever. Yeah, so there is a kind of relationship that, that can accrue. And then I can come back from a really, from a place of compassion and say, you know what, this, this, some of this stuff is my responsibility. Yeah. I did this thing, I'm, I haven't been able to do that or I'm, I'm trying to be right or whatever, mm -hmm. and that's not helpful. And I've noticed this thing that you do objectively. I can see you do this thing, right. or you've said that thing objectively. I remember you saying that thing, and that provoked some kind of an emotion. Oh, no, it didn't provoke an emotion. I, I felt I just, I'm going to take responsibility for my emotions. I, I felt yes. this thing. So let's talk about it. And so, yeah, the, the, the relationship debt thing and the code debt thing really resonate with me as Interesting. a concept yeah um and there's a kind of there's a there's a nuance to that it's not i think it's not like one-to-one -one, but I, I like it as a concept mm -hmm. to remember so talk to me about your company and what you do and how you go about helping teams i think you have this really nice statement on your website about improving the quality of micro moments i i, I like this idea of micro moments because it's not one single big thing you do right it's constant yeah improvement I guess yeah the micro moments thing is I mean very fundamentally it's culture so every interaction that we have 
is the creation of culture. Mm-hmm. So the way that the language that we use, the tone of voice, yeah. the intention, mostly it's about intention. And ultimately that manifests some reality in a family, in one-to-one or wider society, mm-hmm. right? Krishnamurti, Jiddu Krishnamurti is a great, one of the great thinkers of the last hundred years. He gave very little direction or very little guidance about what wisdom or insight or affection or love was as a, as a method. But he, he was very clear that what you do on a day-to-day and a moment-to-moment basis is society. And it is kind of grounded in a Hindu, Buddhist, yeah. well, almost any major religion, this is, in <laughs> yeah. spiritual practice, this the is same thing. It's, a, it's the same thing. Yeah. But the point is, the ways that we are taking responsibility for our emotions, so earlier I said, you know, you said this thing, and I felt this way. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you said this thing and you made me yeah. feel angry. Yes. You are the one who's doing this to me is a fallacy. It's not true. No one makes you feel a certain way. You, we are the kind of culmination of, a, of many, many, many different things. Mostly our kind of relationship with our primary caregivers and yes. our parents. Um, so if anyone is, to, not, not to blame, but if anyone, is, <laughs> if anyone is to kind of take responsibility. And if you have a kind of certain spiritual paradigm, you might even argue that there are previous lives or whatever it is, right? So you can go on and on about who's to blame. So the point is, it's not important who's is yeah the point is is that you are an adult and you can show up how you choose to show up yeah so i guess what we do as an organization is try to support that capacity for people to show up and have really quality micro moments and the argument is is that if you are able to do that and you can support psychological safety for example Uh or you can support things like belonging where people can show up and be their authentic self which in any particular day might look differently you might say well actually Today, my authentic self is to like turn the screen off. I'm still here with you. I can listen, uh-huh. but I'm just not going to, you're not going to see my face because I'm just not feeling great or whatever it is. And the, the sense that you can be that and everyone understands you and, and will accept you regardless because you're a human and in families and relationships in organizations, we have containers. We say we've got specific values. We've got specific principles. There's things that we really deeply care about as a group and we're going to we're going to hold those when we relate with each other. Yeah. Quality micro moments are often kind of very, very closely aligned to those things. It's about building really fundamental human relationship skills. And the theory goes that you build psychological safety, you build belonging, you build spaces where people can express themselves without fear of repercussion, mm-hmm. which you were kind of talking about earlier about, you know, this, this candor, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this kind of brave candor or caring candor. Is always is always grounded in this idea that we create spaces of safety where you can express an idea and not worry about it getting shut down. Like, yeah, it's a good idea, but you know, yeah, it's yeah. like okay, but there's a there's a reason why I said that. So let's have a discussion about why I had I said that idea. And those things equal performance and they equal well being. There's plenty of academic literature on the link in a lot of different mm. fields in the built environment, in teams, in organizations, um, in childhood development, that if you create safety, which has to be created, you can't, it doesn't just happen. Yes. You don't just say, this is a safe space that doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you do that, teams are well, teams are happy, and groups and families perform well, and they create well, and they make good services, products, systems. So that's almost anyhow is trying to do that. Google released a study about what makes their 
best performing teams and they had a number of aspects or, or, or facets. Psychological safety was the top. That's interesting. When you, for your work, what when not when you when you hear this idea of kind of micro moments and mm -hmm. you know building safety or building belonging, what do you see in your own work? Or it's two sides. So I because I have like what what I think of as an outward facing relationship to as a consultant to my clients, and then the inward facing to the teams, yeah. right? Or my my peers or my closer group of, of people I work with. And I, th I think these micro moments they exist in both areas. But they're slightly different. So with clients, they want to be understood. Mm. And sometimes you need to challenge them, maybe whip them a little bit into shape. They have crazy ideas, <laughs> you know, uh, because that's what you do as a consultant, right? You, you should be telling them, you know, what is right and valuable rather than just being a yes-sayer. Yeah. So the micro moments there are sometimes quite uh, difficult because, you know, you may have to be a bit controversial sometimes yeah um, you know but at the same time you you also need to read between the lines where they are coming from why they behave in, in a certain way um and then within the teams there it's a lot about what you just said creating a shared understanding yeah. context you know of, of whatever domain or topic you're talking about and then having these so the best teams i have worked with are, are teams where you have um a lot of communication like constant communication mm. It's just high bandwidth communication where you, you constantly talk about stuff rather than write long documents or bounce emails off. Um, and to get to that point where you're really comfortable, because I feel sometimes when you are not comfortable with your colleagues, you go back to a more asynchronous communication like emails or something. Yeah, interesting. Because you don't want to hear their feedback. Yeah. Right? You want to tell them what, what they should be doing or what's happening or whatever. And you're like, I don't actually, I'm not interested. I don't. And it's just a burden if they come back with anything. Yeah, right. Um, so you don't want to deal with them as a person, actually. So, so building a relationship where you're actually happy for your colleagues to talk to you and give their opinion. Yeah, that's so interesting because the, the first thing I think about when you were talking about, well, just generally when you're talking there was about like basketball teams. You know, like yes. when you watch basketball teams, really good basketball teams are constantly directly communicating, really high performing teams. Yes. And that's so interesting in what you said that there is a kind of asynchronous way, which is slightly disengaged and slightly. So there's a kind of proximity of communication that's, that you've described, which is really important. We lose that a bit in the kind of remote working space, a bit of that, uh, the proximity or the ability potentially to be more intimate. We communication. do, but you can have it in the sense of with really good teams. I've had this where everyone is on whatever you use, Slack or even Teams or Zoom or whatever. And you can literally in 10 seconds get someone on the call. And the yeah. trick there, what I found was, is that when people are kind of, this, this sounds maybe unfair now, but when they talk, when they talk too much, when they whine all the time, these people you, you then don't want to talk to because you may have just a five second question. Yeah. So I'm like, hey, can I give you a quick call? You talk about it and you only want to talk about that and then it's done and it needs to be done then because if you can't have these, these short interactions, I've realized people prefer not to have the interaction at all. Right. Now, when people whine or they talk a lot, that's maybe a sign for something different that needs addressing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying you should ignore that, but I think you need to get to this point where everyone gauges what's the interest of communication here at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah, that's what a one that's like, it's quite wise of you to say, okay, if there's if this thing is coming up, and they're whining all the time, there's probably a need there that's not being met. And there's a time and a place to have discussion about, hey, I'm, 
sounds like when we speak, I'm hearing that you're feeling frustrated and there's something about a relationship that you're, you haven't figured out what's going on. What do you need? Yeah. And then there's the second bit there, which is really brilliant, which is just get on call. You know, there's a, even remotely, there's a, there's an opportunity for teams to be intimate or direct in conversation yeah. or I like this word proximity. I, I, uh, that's a really good, I, it's yeah. like proximity of, of, I, I like of dialogue, yeah. which is like the other one end of proximity of dialogue is yes. Yeah, sending a really long email, CCing five people in, <laughs> and yeah. just like not take, not wanting to engage in anything direct. Or <laughs> ask our ring on top of <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Right. And on the other end is like, Hey, you got five minutes to just jump on a call real quick. Or, I want to just hear your thoughts on a few things. Wait, to be honest, I've had like with my, my, my recent team, I've had conversations which literally lasted 15 seconds on a, on a Zoom call or something. Yeah. And, and that's really cool because then you're like not interrupting them, you know, otherwise they're like, oh, I'm interrupted. I want to do something else. But if they know you can have those really short conversations, it becomes painless. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in the office, you're absolutely right. If we were sitting across the desk then these short things can happen a bit more organically and easier. So maybe remote is, it, it just needs more, to use another Buddhist word, more mindfulness. <laughs> yeah. And actually what you've described is brilliant. It's like, no, no, in some teams we've created a ritual or a rhythm, which is that we know we can jump on a 15 second phone call because it's going to be dynamic. It's going to be quick. We're going to mm -hmm. learn and we're going to push the project forward and we're okay with that. And actually, you've built up a comfort of just getting on the call if you're remote. Yeah. And that's really hard for people because it's, it's these, some of these conversations can be hard and they take energy and we don't have a lot of, you know, people are working really fast and they're working at a pace that's unsustainable and they're taking on yeah. so much work. And so that extra relationship piece, there has to be a discussion about how do we be with each other? How are we with each other? We just try to illuminate those things in the work. Just try to bring those dynamics. Just talk. Let's just talk about them. So when you work with your clients, how do I have to envisage that? Is that mostly workshops where you proactively workshop stuff with them, or is that stuff where you just observe? Yeah, it could be both. It's mostly a, it's mostly a kind of workshop setting or culture change program. Right. We try not to use the word culture change, but some kind of extended program of engagement where we. Right. The team might say we, we're feeling it feels like we're low in morale. We want to boost morale, uh -huh. or there's some lack of trust. We want to kind of work through that, mm -hmm. or or yeah, it could be as simple as like we think we need a new vision. We think we want to rethink what we're doing and how we fit in our ecosystem. And or yeah, sometimes it's just coaching. Sometimes it's like I just want to work as a leader to improve how I'm engaging with my community, with my team, with my family, yes. or whatever. Can I just have a space? once every so often, even if it's 15, 20 minutes here and there, just to be able to talk through things and get, some, oh, nice. get okay. some insight, get some clarity or, and any of these culture change, quote unquote, yeah. projects or works or engagements end up being coaching. It ends up being like leadership trying to f figure out themselves and figure out their own kind of shit and how it's, <laughs> how it's manifesting in the team and the responsibility that they are taking or are not taking. Are they showing up as an adult or is they showing, are they showing up as a parent or are they showing up as a child uh, and in what settings? So we talked about Kim Scott's radical candor and she makes that point. I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's a little bit about like, you need to sort yourself out first as a leader. Yeah. Um, and I think that's your point about, are you showing up as a child or as a, as an adult? Why are you in that relationship? Right. It's so hard too, to, it's really hard. It's not a, don't want to make it sound like it's a, 
No, it's it's, yeah. it's a really hard thing to engage with that. And especially when strong emotions are present and we are often showing up in ways that we just, we, we don't understand. Do you find, sorry, this is maybe going very, again, very Buddhist, but do you find that a lot of behaviors, you see negative behaviors are driven by fear? And fear, I mean, the, I, I think the European use of the word is a bit maybe not ideal, but fear as in, you know, not getting the promotion, being found out, um, yeah. not performing, not looking as great as you think you should or whatever, and like fear in the widest sense. Do, do, you, do, you, do you feel that's a key driver for a lot of negative behaviors? Or Yeah, and I, I guess I would also just be, I would flag this idea of like negative behaviors that we, we just, we show up and we do things and um, sometimes they support certain outcomes. Oh, okay. And, and I would say that Oh, you mean this? This uh, negative is like too um, too judgmental as a as a word. Is that? I think maybe it doesn't capture the reality, which is culture is just a manifestation of the light and the dark. It's, there are things that are supporting growth, supporting learning, supporting yes, development, yes. supporting connection. There are things that are not doing that. Yeah, and they're not necessarily good or bad. I see what you mean. Yeah, they, okay. they, they simply just create an outcome, and it depends on the kind of outcome we want. I guess. What, the way I would describe it is, and it's, it's a really good question about fear, and the way that Marshall Rosenberg describes it, which is the guy who created nonviolent communication, mm -hmm. or, or in England they call it compassionate communication, because I think they, don't, they can't deal with the word violence. It's just like, <laughs> it, really, yeah. it really upsets them to hear the word violence, which is fair. Um, yeah, yeah. Not all of them. Some, some clients are not, not happy with the word violence. Yeah. Um, the point that he fundamentally describes is that in any interaction, you are either creating connection, intimacy, learning and understanding and affection, yep. or you are creating distance, isolation, separation oh, okay. and fracture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the key thing that determines whether or not you're connecting and learning versus kind of fracturing and pushing away is an intention of either care, affection, love, ultimately, or an intention of fear, resentment, insecurity, superiority. So superiority being, I'm, I want to be right. I need to prove that I'm, yes. I'm the person who's getting it right. And as a leader, one of your key roles is to be able to hold multiple seemingly contradictory point of views at the same time. So what I mean by that is, Marcel, you come from a very particular place and point of view mm -hmm. and experience and you're a particular age and a particular background and a skill set and a way of thinking and a character type. And if you are engaging with someone from this point of view of like good or bad, right or wrong, it's not necessarily useful for the team and for creating the mm -hmm, kind of mm -hmm, outcome yeah. that you want, which, you know, if you're like, if you're designing, you want to engage in what's different. You want to engage in the diversity of perspective. That's why diversity is important. Yeah. And it's not just a word. It's actually a value and it's a competitive advantage. For me, the question is always going, it always goes back to why, like, why are we in this room together? Mm. You know, why are we here? Why are you working here? Why are we paying you? And the collective understanding of why we work together, you know, what have we decided about how we're going to be together and what are the principles? What are the values? I mean, it's, it's a bit cliche and I, I, I don't, I, I'm conscious of like using the word values because it's so often doesn't mean anything. Mm. Yeah. But actually, that is your job as leadership is 
to make sure that they do mean something because they do fucking mean something. (laughs) You know, these words mean something. How are you as a leader creating these rituals and rhythms? So like these things that we do consistently, regularly as a practice, how are we actually living again on the micro moment to moment basis? Yeah. That helps us move towards our goal Mm. and our vision and our better world. Yeah. The thing that we're all kind of striving for here, eight hours, nine hours a day. And who the hell wants to spend eight, nine hours a day working towards nothing? When you look at like the teams you've seen and the ones that are performing well, is there something, I've touched on some of those already, but is there something that you can summarize how, you know, the, how, how is someone, if they're building a team or they have had, or they're having a team, what they should be focusing on or how they should be looking at their team? I think, yeah, some of the principles that we've talked about, mm-hmm. this thing about rituals and rhythms and storytelling, you know, like what are the collective visions or the collective principles or values that we hold? Mm-hmm. And let's, let's actually make them really explicit. Is this about purpose as well? I think it is about purpose. Yeah. Why do you want to do this thing? Where, mm-hmm. Why do you care if the world looks like that in 10 years or 15 right. years? And yeah. do you yeah. actually really care about it? And are you willing to show up every day as an adult to work towards that future? Mm-hmm. Um, and why? With one team, we've kind of built out these collective uh, values. And how we did that was we said, forget everything that we know about what we think this team is. I just want you as an individual to think about the moment mm-hmm. that you felt like you belonged in this work. What was the moment that you really knew was the place you needed to be? And we, we had them tell stories about that moment. Who was there? What it was said? What wasn't said? What was actually happening? Why was it meaningful? Right. What was the tone of voice? We had a big team of like 15, 20 people who were leaders in, in health in the part of London we were working in. And by the end of a half-day session, they had built out these stories and these principles and they had a collective vision in three hours they had a process Mm -hmm. where everyone could engage feel safe participate tell their story and and synthesize a collective vision you can build off that you can do everything from that point of view Mm -hmm. or that place and if you have the intention as you said of of care and affection and of a kind of i would reframe this woman's words a little bit which is like a kind of intimate or affectionate candor affectionate honesty you know it has to be a place from uh, of care where can people find you uh, my company is almost anyhow uh, which is a nietzsche quote um so nietzsche said something like if we have the why okay to live so our purpose our meaning then we can survive or deal with almost anyhow so anything the tactical stuff is not that important the operational stuff is even less important on the grand scheme of things. What's most important is that we understand our purpose, why we exist, why we come together. And the other stuff kind of figures itself out if we're aligned on that. So almost anyhow is the company, almostanyhow.com. Um, or you, we're on Twitter or LinkedIn. Cool. I'll put the link in the show notes. And you consult for public sector, private sector, organizations, small and large. It doesn't... Yeah, small and large. Uh, it does. Yeah, if there's a team and there's a group of people that are working together, 
mostly at the at the moment our work is kind of across the UK a lot with larger charities some work with the NHS some work with um, local authorities amazing thank you so much thanks Marcel it's been I've learned that's been really helpful always always talking to you learned quite a bit so thanks man. That's it for today's episode. For further details, have a look at the show notes in your podcast player or on theburnup.com. If lean and agile are interesting to you, you may also want to pop by my blog at thedigitalbusinessanalyst.com. I'm very interested in your feedback and ideas and happy to discuss interesting opportunities from consulting to coaching to getting involved in actual projects. For inquiries, please visit theburnup.com. This podcast is produced by Burnup Media Limited under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives 4.0 license, which means you can share it as long as you give credit, but you cannot change it or make money of it. Until next time, thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.